and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this week by NAF. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I hope everyone's been able to take advantage of the good weather and get out and about with their horses. I am going to be going out jumping this week after you've listened to this and uh, really looking forward to, to getting some training in after a few weeks of doing less horsey things. Our interview this week is with super groom Alan Davies. He works for dressage stars Carl Hester and Charlotte Dujardin and reminisces about Vallegro's retirement ceremony. Oh, goodness, that was some emotional rollercoaster, that one. it was. They didn't tell me to the last minute that they wanted me to lead him in on my own. Um, the, the thought of doing that with him was just unbelievable. I'll be chatting to our news team about making decisions on vet treatment of horses, a boost of government money to improve participation in horse sport, and a new British dressage system for training judges. Finally, our favourite vets, Rick Farr from Farr and Percy Equine and Andy Fisk-Jackson from the Royal Veterinary College, will give us an insight into the smelly side of a vet's life. That smell, it lingers in the back of your nose. You finish your day, you've washed off, you can still smell it, and everyone's still looking around at you. Yeah. And go, the, the secret, Rick, is you have to look around too, so don't draw attention and cry. where's that smell coming from? <laughs> so, gather up your reins and let's get started. Hello, I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm thrilled to be joined by a very exciting guest today, Alan Davies. For anyone who doesn't know Alan, he is groomed to Charlotte Dujardin and Carl Hester. And over the past decade, he has cared for and travelled with some of the most famous horses on the planet, such as Vallegro, Utopia, Nip Tuck, Mount St John Freestyle, Geo and Don Vogue. Alan, hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Hey, I'm really good. Thank you, Polly. Lovely. I know you've only just returned from a very exciting trip to uh, Compiègne in France, haven't you? Just tell us a bit about why that was such an important show for you and Charlotte. Yeah, I am a little tired, just to say the least. It's been a busy couple of weeks, actually. I'm still recovering, I think, from the trip. But um, yeah, we went to Hickstead with some young ones and then I had a day and a half to turn around. And then off to Compiègne with um, Pete, or Imhotep is his show name. And he's nine years old. He's owned by Carl and Collingham. She's had him since he was three, two and a half, three years old. Carl bought him out of Holland. And he, we've been training. He did his first Grand Prix back in the March, a national one, and got a really good mark. So Carl and Charlotte were really excited about him. So is it fair to say he would be Charlotte's top horse at the moment? Yeah. Um, she's got a super bunch of young ones coming on. We've got, we've got a lot of horses in the yard, but he's the one working at Grand Prix um, yeah. at, at the moment. And what's he like in the stable to look after? He's a really sweet horse to take care of. He's not complicated at all. He's quite easy and not, not demanding or anything. He's, you know, he's not a prima donna at all yet. <laughs> He was quite a naughty little chap as a youngster when he was being broken and stuff. He was sure uh, he did get quite a few people off, but he sort of redeemed himself in the last couple of years and has started to behave. But he, he does like to go out in the field. Um, he's because he's quite hot and goey. So to get him to relax and chill out, he goes out in the field with um, another horse uh, called Jaguar. And sometimes with on Vogue as well, sometimes the three of them go out together um, and live out in a big field 
overnight um keeps him really happy lovely i know carl does love to have his horses out in the field as much as possible and it's really interesting that pete does live out most of the time charlotte's obviously got lots of really exciting young horses at the moment um our readers and listeners might be familiar with times kismet and times monomore the two young horses she recently won titles with at the winter dressage championships just tell me a bit about the two of them and what they're like yeah times kismet is very exciting she's absolutely beautiful she's a beautiful stamp of a horse and she's tall and elegant and leggy very different to pete pete's you know short and stocky with great big feet whereas <laughs> she's very tall and elegant and she's a real princess she's a little bit like freestyle she likes to be spoiled and she's quite demanding she likes her treats and things like that yeah um then mono more um mono as he's called at home he um he is just delightful he is such a big cuddly teddy bear and um he just takes everything in his stride and he just everything you ask him to do he does it he never questions anything he's just such a popper everyone loves him he's like he's like a teacher's pet that one and we call him Mr Perfect because <laughs> he just does everything so nicely and so well and um he's just a, an absolute dream I took him to the nationals last year he'd never been away from home he never stayed away from home he went up there and stayed away for a, a few days and was just loving it and was not a problem at all and um because you know, sometimes they can stress a bit when they're away from home surroundings mm. change but um he didn't at all so and yeah that's what Carl and Charlotte love to do is bring the you know young ones on up to Grand Prix and um train them on themselves oh it's so exciting and I know both of them really love that journey don't they getting to the championships and winning titles is obviously fantastic but I know Carl and Charlotte are both so passionate about the journey as you say of course, while these younger horses are hugely exciting, nothing can really compare to the two most special horses of all, London Olympic gold medalists of Allegro and Utopia. And you still look after both of them every day, don't you? Oh, uh, yeah. Those are the two favourites of all time. I still feed them first thing in the morning and muck them out and keep them clipped in the winter and ride them every day. Try and keep them fit yeah. and well and happy. I don't want them to fall apart, so I keep them ticking over. And, um, yeah, love them to bits. I do get told off sometimes of spending a bit too much time with them <laughs> when I'm brushing them and uh, pampering them, but um, they deserve it. Oh, they definitely do deserve it. And when it comes to hacking them out, what are they like to, to hack? How are, they, how are they different to each other? Are they spooky? Are they good in traffic? How, how are they as happy hackers nowadays? They're amazing to hack. They really are. Um, Vallegro is like a police horse. I love riding him so much. And um, nothing phases him. He, he absolutely loves it. You have to sort of kick him to come home, kind of saying he doesn't want to come home. He loves yeah. going out there, walking around the roads, all around the fields, like to chat to the neighbours, <laughs> chat to the cows <laughs> in the next farm. Um, and, um, yeah, anyone can ride him. Um, and Utopia is still quite bouncy even though he's 21 now he is a stallion so you still have to be sort of um have your wits about you to ride him because he will okay. get excited and do a little piaf massage sometimes but um he's a joy to hack out he's not spooky or anything like that and he's um they're both so good in traffic um utopia's 21 now and allegro 20 um but they both still feel amazing so uh yeah they're a, they're a great joy to take care of 
Oh, I'm sure they are. Um, and how often do Carl and Charlotte ever get back on board, those two? Occasionally they'll get on them, um, but I try and keep them to myself, really. Um, I get, <laughs> <laughs> I don't like anyone else riding them. I like to do them all myself. So, uh, yeah, because if they, if they get on, then they want to start doing the one-time changes and the PF and the passage. And, um, I don't think they need to do that anymore. So I try and keep them off him. <laughs> And obviously, your career has been full of highlights, um, especially those involving Vallegro Antitopia and uh, your time traveling all over the world with them. But just tell us about one or two of your your absolute favorite memories or those that stand out for, for a particular reason. Yeah, that's such a tricky question. Um, you know, there's, there's been so many uh, amazing moments um all through the years, really. And not only with Vallegro and Utopia, but with all the other up and coming stars, you know, seeing the young ones coming up through the levels and and times like when I flew Nip Tuck for the first time out to Doha with we were sort of finding out how he would cope ready for Rio. Um and he was a he was a big, gangly, goofy horse. He was a bit spooky, so he was not the easiest to to travel, but he we flew him out to Doha and he coped so well and he won the Grand Prix out there and then um and that was a good uh, run up to then flying him to Rio and he was so good flying to Rio because he's, he's quite big but he figured out how to stand in the crate diagonally on the plane and give himself room and, and he, was, he wasn't a bother at all he was such a star so figuring out um, how to cope with him and you know getting him around the world and getting him to Olympics and seeing him at the Olympics win a medal was an amazing achievement as well as Vallegro winning his, you know, his second um, Olympic uh, medal at Rio that was yeah. unbelievable um, moment and to have them both there in the arena getting their medals was was quite an emotional moment really oh my gosh I'm sure I, I know it was emotional for uh, for all of us watching from home and uh, yeah it was a really special moment I know that Allegro's retirement ceremony later that year uh, at Olympia 2016 was was very special to you as well wasn't it Oh, goodness, that was some emotional rollercoaster, that one. It was really hectic few days. I mean, Olympia had organised it beautifully. It was, it was run like clockwork. Um, it was run with military precision of uh, the timings of his appearances and interviews and things like that. And it was just continuous for three days. And we were busy and Carl was competing as well. And then they didn't tell me to the last minute that they wanted me to lead him in on my own. Um, everyone was going to be in the arena. They were going to do some interviews in the arena and then they were going to open the curtains and I was to lead him up the centre line. Oh, wow. And thinking about it now, <laughs> it makes me emotional. The, the thought of doing that with him was just unbelievable. And I don't know how I held it together. Well, I didn't, actually. I cried the whole way up the centre line. Managed just in time to stop crying as they turned the cameras on me to um, interview me. But the the noise from the crowd was just unbelievable. And the support and the love for that horse was just unbelievable. Do you think Filegro realised what was happening? How, how did he react? He had the most, well, he has the most amazing temperament. And he literally walked beside me up the centre line and he got to the... Um, the middle of the arena and was just looking for someone to give him some treats and then he was looking at the camera and nothing has ever fazed him. Everyone else was in floods of tears and he he didn't bat an eyelid. He's so incredible. 
Amazing. What a horse. So, Alan, let's go back a little bit. How did working for Carl first come about for you? I know you'd worked as a groom for a number of years at that point, hadn't you? But but not actually in dressage. Yeah, I've worked all over the world um, from when I left school. Um, I started out in hunt service and then I got a job with show jumpers in this country and then I ended up traveling to America and working in America for a few years with show jumpers. And then I came back and I did a bit with Aventus and then um, a bit with show horses. And then I, I had quite a long time in the showing world. And, um, and I'd met Carl a few times over the years and I actually flew the and the British team out to Sydney in 2000 and Carl was on the team for the Sydney Olympics and a couple of times over the years he said oh you know can you come work for me and it just I was busy or I was flying off somewhere else or whatever and then in in 2010 he called me and said listen I've got these two really good up-and-coming horses and I need someone to come and uh, do some shows with them and at that point I was freelancing i didn't have a huge amount on and um and i said yes yeah. so i came to do just a couple of shows and then it all went crazy with Allegro and utopia and so carl said uh would i stay and and manage their traveling and their competition careers and i'm still here 12 years later i mean sort of doing it all over again with different horses again now <laughs> so, so- Alan, if it hadn't been horses, if you hadn't become a groom, what do you think you might have done instead? <laughs> well, if you ask my friends, a lot of them would say I should have been a hairdresser, really, because I'm, <laughs> I'm quite good with the mane and tail. And the, <laughs> so I probably would have been, you know, good at chatting to the old ladies, having their blue rinse and their perm, and, you know, um, I would have been quite good at all that, I think. I'm sure you would have been. <laughs> Um, Over the last few years, it's been great to see that grooms are gaining more recognition for their talents and their hard work. Obviously, that's that's really great. Why is it so important that grooms are are properly recognised? I think it's so important because I think we've got the most important job on the team keeping those horses fit and well and happy. And we flew the horses, you know, halfway around the world to Tokyo for the Olympics last year. And then we had the matter of weeks to prepare them then for the European Championships in Hagen. It's a massive job keeping them fit and happy and well. You know, they, they had to recover from Tokyo, so they had to have a bit of downtime. Then we had to bring them back up to fitness. And we have to work closely with the, the vets and the farriers and everyone and all the organising staff to make sure that those horses are fit and well to then go back out to Europe and do another championship. And that's a, a massive job. You know, it's it's not easy. Um, so I think it's hugely important that the grooms are recognised um, as I think one of the most important people in the team because the you know the riders couldn't go and win the medals without fit, happy, healthy horses, and and that's that all comes down to us. That's on our shoulders. So it's a a massive job. Absolutely, it's a huge responsibility, and yeah, as you say, it is. It's great that um, that that recognition is is growing. Um, Alan, it's set to be another busy summer for you, what with the World Championships taking place in Denmark in August. Um, And of course, lots of other shows and championships. Do you ever find time to put your feet up? (laughs) Um, Putting up my feet is not an option. Um, uh, (laughs) No, we've got a 
huge amounts of young horses coming through that need uh, to get out and compete. There's a world championships coming up. So, yeah, it's all to play for. And I've got my own ponies uh, that I show as well. Um, I've got a new one I bought at the end of last year. Riding Pony has just done her first show and won a couple of championships. Uh, I've been working quite hard on her over the winter to get her ready. So that's exciting. And the, the Shetlands are, have been out to a couple of shows. So I need to get them out to some shows as well. So, no, it's going to be super busy, which is good keeps me out of trouble and that's how we like it so yeah hopefully it's going to be a really cracking summer well alan it's been such a pleasure having you on the horse and hound podcast today thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your stories and we look forward to speaking to you soon okay no problem thanks so much probably lovely to talk to you So I'm joined now by all three members of Horse and Hound's news team. We have our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? Yeah, all good. Well, not all good because the bad news is that my lorry has still not passed its MOT. And, you know, and you see the garage number calling up and they're like, yeah, we've just found this other thing that's broken. And you're just like, yeah, I don't want to know. Oh, <laughs> um, no. So, but moving on from that, the good bit was I want, went to this uh, rider, uh, sort of rider training, whole rider and horse thing and uh, found out just how unfit I am and how misaligned I am. But we should be able to write a nice, interesting, hopefully feature from it. <laughs> Excellent. So are we going to see you now doing stretching exercises, running? What was their suggested well, remedy? Not running because that's not going to happen. But yeah, the stretches I'm, I'm trying to do, which is not helpful when you've got a little enthusiastic terrier trying to lick your face at the same time. But um, I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well done. We also have our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Hi, Lucy. How's it going? Yeah, really good. Thank you, Pippa. I went to watch horses without reporting this weekend on Saturday, which seems a bit baffling for a day off that I go and do what I do on my day job. But it's actually really nice to go to an event and not be thinking about watching. You can just enjoy it. And I went shopping. So that was nice. And then Sunday I was reporting. So I was at Point to Point, which was lovely. It's been such a nice summery weekend. Yeah, real pleasure. How about you, Pippa? I was at a wedding, um, first nice. wedding I've been to since before COVID and didn't really realise this, but the first time I've sort of been away for a weekend with friends since before COVID for yeah. one one reason or another. And um, yes, it was lovely. We were in Derbyshire and um, staying at this youth hostel, which was where the wedding was and everyone was able to stay there as well. So it was super relaxed. No one had to worry about drinking or driving or getting taxis. And I'm looking, I'm sitting here as, as we're speaking and I'm looking at a little picture. One of my friends had a Polaroid camera there that printed prints out right then and there, which is such a novelty value. Yeah. She did pictures of us playing table tennis. So I'm playing table tennis in high heels and a hat and she gave me a little print of it. <laughs> so that's making me smile. And as you say, it was sunny. So yeah, it was great. We also have Becky Murray with us, our other senior news writer. How's it going with you, Becky? Good, thank you. I have actually been riding my horse. I could say we haven't had much luck the past two years, but we're sound. We're actually back on board and I had a lesson last week. So I've just been boring everyone to death on my social media with photos and updates. Oh, that's nice. Well, on with the serious news. Lucy, you've been looking this week at treatment of horses and when they are overtreated or perhaps undertreated. Tell us a bit more about this debate that you were reporting. 
Yes, this was, it was a really fascinating debate, a wholly interesting day, really. I was at the Animal Welfare Foundation's 2022 forum in Westminster, uh, which had a full lineup of vet presentations and connected debates. So the one I focus on in this week's issue came under the equine overtreatment umbrella, asking where is the line in the sand when it comes to treating horses? Now, when I walked into that room that morning, I thought I knew where I stood on most of the big topics, including this one that was going to be discussed that day. And it made me question everything, which I think is a sign of a great debate. So the crux of this particular one was how vets ascertain where the line in the sand is when they're treating horses and how difficult that can be and why that's so difficult, really. So there is no universal line. The sand's constantly shifting, which is compounded by the fact that science is always shifting and developing. So the point that was raised is that there's potentially both under and over treatment there happening and knowing where to draw in that line is so hard. So the underpinning priority for vets is obviously to do no harm and to prioritise an animal's welfare, ensuring that they're pain free. And there's an enormous amount of factors that play into that. And how do you decide what level of pain is acceptable now for a long-term benefit when you can't explain that to a horse? And for example, whose future benefit and what are the benchmarks that we're measuring that success by? So human factors also, they said, can't be underestimated. Things like past experiences, emotional attachment, seeing an animal in pain, finances, plus the ability and willingness to for the aftercare, ensuring the long-term welfare of the horse isn't going to be compromised in recovery. Uh, plus, of course, human societal pressures. There's always, as we know, someone more knowledgeable, in inverted commas, at the yard, and how that all bears on someone's decision-making. So one of the big takeaways that I really took from the debate was that it's about the bigger picture. Obviously, with the horse's well-being front and centre, that's the you know, what you're aiming for. But there's so much that has to be considered when you're making these big and at times life and death decisions. Mm. And I think in your story as well, there was also some discussion about veterinary medicine in racing and elite sports and sort of how those play into the care that vets can offer to all horses. I thought that part was really interesting. Yes, I agree. And again, this was a part where it made me realise how many more layers there are to what comes down to one question of where is the line in the sand and again it's not saying in any way that the ends always justify the means by any measure but scientific and veterinary developments that come because of racing because of elite sports do have a trickle-down effect to the entire equine population we watched a brilliant video actually of a horse having screws inserted to stabilize a leg leg fracture and now that was standing surgery so no general anesthetic or the risks associated with that which and it then provides significant and instant relief for that particular horse. And now that expertise, that cutting edge science and orthopedic equipment, it's not cheap. And, you know, vets aren't born with the knowledge of how to do that. But what it means is by developing that is to give one specific example is that it's there for the wider population to benefit from. And they're pushing that forwards um, in terms of medicine and what uh, veterinary medicine and what can be offered and likewise funds from sport medicine are part of business for for practices and things and we all want vets that offer true 24-hour care whether you've got your companion pony or a really top top superstar horse and so having that expertise and funding to offer also feeds into 
into when we're looking at how we're treating horses and what we can do and where what we can potentially do in the future as well so yeah really fascinating a lot of big thoughts to be thought <laughs> <laughs> and i know also the equine vet and behavior specialist Gemma pearson who uh, we speak to quite a lot was also involved in that debate what did she sort of have to contribute there I really enjoyed her perspective because like you said, she's a behavioral specialist and she was really asking the forum to consider ways we can ask horses for their opinion to, to, to simplify it really right down there. Um, she said that there's lots of good tools out there now, for example, things such as pain scales, which she said can help vets and owners understand what a horse is feeling when making decisions. So again, it's all part of that bigger picture using your expertise and all these things available to you to help you understand and make the decision when you're deciding where the line in the sand is for that situation, that particular horse at that time. And I think I'll just leave you with a quote from her actually. And she said that we're never going to know exactly what an animal is feeling, but we should never let perfect be the enemy of good. And I just thought that summed up really the whole, the whole day, the whole forum, the whole debate. So yeah, a huge amount to think about there. Thank you, Lucy. That sounds like a really interesting debate. And of course, more on that in the magazine this week. Becky, you've been writing about some government money, which is coming the way of horse sport to improve participation. What's this all about? Well, Sport England launched a new 10-year strategy called Uniting the Movement. And this has been based on research that found some groups are typically less active. And this includes women, people of long-term health conditions, disabled people, and those from ethnically diverse communities. And Sport England has decided to invest more than 550 million among 120 different organisations. Sport England said the organisations have been selected based on all their ability to influence change and improvement at the heart of the system they are part of. Now, British Equestrian is one of these organisations and it will be receiving more than £5 million of this pot. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of money. What is the BEF going to use that funding for? British Question said, equestrianism is a model sport for things like gender equality and disability access and age range, but said the organisation is less successful in promoting ethnic diversity and this must become a feature in the future. So the plan is to use the funding in partnership with stakeholders to ensure those who feel excluded are catered for and this will be by providing insight about the, ba the barriers communities face. So. British Equestrian hopes to tackle inequalities and also recently announced plans to carry out research looking at these barriers. They've confirmed the work will be carried out by a learning and development consultancy, AKD Solutions. So it'll be interesting to hear the outcome of this work and hopefully the funding will be put to good use. Hmm. Well, we'll look forward to, to seeing the results of that. Thank you, Becky. Eleanor, we are talking this week also about a new British dressage system for training judges. What's this one all about? Yeah, so this is something we did report about online when they sort of said it was going to come in. It is now launched and is working. And this is British Dressage BD has been working with a, a equestrian specialising tech company called Black Horse One. And it's it's essentially sort of an online platform. They're revolutionising, they say, the way judges learn and progress and train. And, and the aim is so that they can standardize it so wherever you live in the country historically there may have been sort of shortages of certain levels of judges in some areas and it has been very difficult or can have been very difficult to get to um, to get to where you need to train and be assessed and also uh, a big thing was that it was very assessment focused so it was like having to go and pass an exam 
Whereas now it's sort of you can someone has apparently sat one of the exams from America. You can do it online with a, you know, like a video test in front of you that you're judging. And it even helps with things like, you know, the logistics of trying to get six different judges around in an arena to try and judge it. They're all going to be seeing different things on an assessment. So the idea is that all judges will have the same training and, and be assessed in the same way. Mm. And that company, Black Horse One, who BD have worked for on this, they are the company behind the spectator judging system that's Mm. very popular and well used on the continent, aren't they? Yeah, so they know their stuff. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I think you spoke to a judge who had actually used the new system. What did they say? Just uh, the same thing, you know, very accessible. It's all there. It's more structured training because one of the big things they want to do is is train better judges not train people to pass an exam which has to be obviously a better thing for everyone and she said you know you get more confidence this judge said and and that must be helpful too to know that you are in the right place to be judging if that makes sense Mm, that you've had the appropriate training and feeling confident yeah And there's a suggestion as well that this is going to benefit riders as well as judges. Is that right? Yeah, so that's sort of one of the big things about it. So um, BD told me that the the training should help judges gain 360 degree understanding of everything involved to get a horse to this level, what what has to have happened, um, which will help them sort of understand the riders. And she said, you know, it's so important the riders have a good experience, that the right combination wins the class and that the rider goes away feeling they've got the right feedback that they can then use to develop their own riding and their own horse further. And one thing she said that I thought was really uh, good was, you know, dressage is supposed to be about a test of training and not a test for its own sake. Mm, actually, we've got a letter that I think will run in next week's magazine from a rider who um, was talking about the feedback she had received on her dressage sheets and how that had been beneficial to her and from talking to judges. So a nice little tie in there. Well, thank you, Eleanor. And thank you to Becky and Lucy for joining us today, too. This week's Horse and Hand podcast is supported by NAF. Trust NAF to supply five-star products for the best performance worldwide. In Alan Davies' capacity as international travelling groom to Team Hester, it's crucial that he is able to trust the supplements and care products used for the horses. NAF's commitment to clean sport allows him to do just that. So we're going over to our vets now. Over to you, Rick. Hi, my name's Rick. I'm one of the vets at Far and Percy Equine, and I'm joined by Andy Fitz-Jackson, one of the uh, surgeons at the Royal Veterinary College. And we're just kind of going through some of those quirks about being a vet, the day-to-day things that we kind of encounter. Uh, Andy, you're still with us, and I gather. Hello. Hi, Rick. Well, actually, I woke up this morning and I said to my wife, I said, um, you know, I, had, I was going to be discussing some of these things, and uh, I ran a, f- ran a few of them pastor and uh, some include oh no you better not talk about that it's just uh, <laughs> some of them uh, for various reasons of either uh, gore or, or or whatever i definitely i definitely had a few of those i had one that almost ended well i think it probably did end up in divorce as well so um but it's that kind of classical thing i mean even when we were trying to log into this podcast literally i i pinged andy a message just saying oh we're all logged in uh, are you ready and it's kind of like you get that classical one back which you probably wouldn't get in any other profession saying yep currently got my hand inside a horse i'll literally be there in five minutes <laughs> i was trying to type that message left-handed and i couldn't get the space bar to work so now have to give it to someone else to time and, and just say um but yes you may well be rattling a horse sometimes whilst being on the phone um and um, one thing i will that actually and you'll probably be aware of this that um 
uh, I used to do a lot of um, cattle work in my, my first practice over in Somerset. And, um, and in fact, on a cold day, you know, having your arm inside a horse or in that case a cow, it's warm. Absolutely, you know, it's toasty in there. And, um, you know, it's not agreeably the most appropriate way to warm up your arm, but... Uh, I know, but when, you, when your hands are cold all in the winter, you want to warm them up, yeah. and it's the best place. I uh, know it sounds really harsh, actually. If, exactly. Yeah, you have to... Uh, well, one thing you also know, I'm sure, is that um, even a small change in the temperature, you know, when a horse has got a temperature, a high temperature, you wouldn't think that sort of 0.5 or 1 degree, you'd notice. But I don't know yeah. about you, Rick, but you can, can't yeah. you? You wreck the horse, you go, ooh. This feels warm definitely. And normal. Yeah, no, and, definitely. Um, it, it, it's, and you wouldn't think that your arm would be able to tell the difference um, with mm. such a small change, but you genuinely can. But on the flip side, it can all backfire on you quite literally. Um, in uh, if you do <laughs> rectal horse, which is you know has got diarrhoea, and of course it has a um, propulsive effort with the sort of whistle effect. And why is it always? It's always that first call of the day as well. Yeah. When you end up with literally one side of you is brown from top to bottom, yeah. and you can't <laughs> wash it off, and you know you've got to sit in your car and you're going to hum. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, and there's always that bit, just just sort of beneath your elbow, sort of the base of your sort of tricep bicep, so just that bit that you never spot, do you? You think you've cleaned no. up, and yep. you know. And then usually at the end of the day, when you're probably trying to go to bed, to be honest with you, and you notice you've still got a bit of um, poo essentially on you that uh, has been with you all day. No one's told you. It might be on your face, of course. Um, but, um, you know. But I mean, it's kind of those tips and tricks that you pick up. I mean, have you, what about cow cleansings? I mean, I, oh, I don't know if anyone word. knows what yes. a cow cleansing is like. Sometimes if, um, if the placenta and everything is stuck in a cow, sometimes it can be in there for days. And these mm. things absolutely stink. Can you imagine the stinkiest thing that you could possibly imagine? And I remember my old prof at uni just saying to me, always double glove, always mm. double glove. I'm not sure that's even and, enough though, Rick, to be honest with you. Oh, <laughs> you still, man, still comes that through. smell, it lingers in the back of your nose. And you, you stand mm. there at like, you finish your day, you've washed off, you can still smell it. And you're stood at the checkout at whatever supermarket and everyone's still looking around at you yeah. and going, I know what that is. The, the secret, Rick, is to is to you have to look around too. So don't draw attention. Think, Where's that smell coming from? <laughs> you know, and you start going, oh, I don't know, some 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 doesn't wash for it. Oh no! Another one that springs to mind actually is um, I went out onto a yard to um, deal with a thrush case. That's another one, isn't it? Um, mm. And uh, mm. you know, a lot of the frog was was necrotic, and um, we. Uh, trimmed off the the, the the dead bit of frog um and i had my dog with me you know what dogs are like labrador black labrador i just thought that was the most fantastic thing you know in the world that this um and i kept sort of i normally wouldn't have my dog out but the client said no no let him out let him out he's fine you know which is of course lovely so um anyway cleaned up everything washed my hands you know that jazz got back in the car and mm. was driving away and i thought mm. oh, that smells really lingering isn't it oh, you know just as we talked about and um you know, and it got uh, a couple of calls later. I thought, my word, that. I got back in the car. I think, my word, that that smell it just won't go away. Little did I know that my dog actually picked up a bit of this frog and um, was merrily chewing it in the back oh, of my car. Um, no. And by that time, you know, some saliva had dropped. You know, it was just <laughs> everywhere. And, I, and, it just, and it's it, all ingrained into your seats as well. Oh. Your car's never the same. <laughs> I think if anyone's ever sat into a vet's car... It just we're meant to be nice and hygienic but frankly some of the goo that gets on your seats unless you've got leather seats you're a bit mm. stuffed 
And I sometimes wonder, you know, you take these 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 places now. Of course, you can rock up and they they'll, they'll clean. Uh, you know, you, you wait while they clean the inside outside a car, and uh, I'm always a bit worried that they're going to find something that um, you know is not not particularly fantastic. Literally, we we've got a, a wonderful little car wash around the corner here, which is normally for an outside and in twenty twenty five quid absolute max, and they do a brilliant <laughs> job. I took one of our assistants' car down there while she was on holiday because it was particularly grim. And they just looked at it and went fifty quid. It's like fifty quid to clean the car. And literally, they were they were at it for about an hour and a half, and I mean, yeah. it was just absolutely foul. And it's so it's so well engraved. Yeah, yeah it's worse than having kids and finding chips down oh, the back of the. Oh, that's play. <laughs> it's just the, and I think because you haven't genuinely got a, you know, you usually have got a, a, a tap at hand and you've got a cold hose, but it's in the winter, you know, you're there and you try and wash off everything. But I think when, in cattle practice you tend a bit more ready because you've got you know your waterproof gear on you're kind of more ready for the spurt outs of feces in your spraying out at you and so forth but i think in in equine you know there's that element of um tidiness and the sort of you know you want to project the right image of professionalism and so forth so you don't tend to turn up in sort of waterproof trousers and a parlor top but uh, yeah so it's one of those things that um, vets' lives and vets' cars um, are quite unique. So hopefully it's a little bit of an insight. And uh, generally, we've got uh, quite a bit more to say and follow up on this. So next time we can carry on and you can listen to a bit more of this conversation and uh, see you all next time. Thank you, gentlemen. Next week, Rick and Andy will be back to talk about some of the dangers of veterinary life. Our interview will be with Alice Homer, talking about her multiple wins at Royal Windsor. Plus, of course, we'll review the week's news as normal. Thank you for listening to this week's Horse and Hound podcast, supported by NAF. See you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.